Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about gathering around the campfire. On the banks of old Lake Bistano, neath the cypress and the moss, we hammered and we nailed and built a raft to get across. And late at night, by the fire, we sang Kumbaya, and the Spirit, Holy Spirit, was flowing. Yes, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, was flowing. Twilight time, New York City, descending subway stairs. A man whistling out a tune, I paid a dollar for my fare. And we got on the same train, heading uptown down the tracks. And we sang out of tune to the clackety-clack-clacks and the spirit holy spirit was flowing yes the spirit holy spirit was flowing i have felt it on a mountain top and underneath the stars i have felt it in a churchyard and even in some bars, it'll make you laugh, make you cry, make your heart go ping. Oh, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, will make you shout and want to sing. Come by here, Lord, come by here, come by here, Lord, come by here. Come by here, Lord, come by here, oh Lord, come by here. I suppose I could go on and on, talking about someone praying, or someone singing, or someone crying. But in essence, I just wanted to call out the old campfire song by referring to a song by Victoria Williams called Holy Spirit. This is the second time on an inappropriate conversation show the other one being I Am Not My Lawn, that I've let a Victoria Williams song lead us in, this time with me doing the singing myself. And part of the reason that doesn't bother me a bit to do is that I want to talk about some of the occasions in my life when I've done, frankly, the most singing, at least the most singing over any one given three-day period of time. Because what I mean by the title, Gathering Around the Campfire, is this entire notion that we might have of small group gatherings, or church retreats, or spiritual missions. It's the kumbaya, the come-by-here nature of those types of events. Five years ago, give or take, maybe six, I had gone on one of these spiritual journeys, and I referred to the weekend upon my return as being a mountaintop experience. Wasn't my first, wouldn't be my last, but I called it out that way, and a friend of mine named Rick asked me, in response to that post, if I wouldn't object to sharing some of that experience. 
and I wasn't sure exactly whether he meant sharing my spiritual journey in a broader sense, which would be great because that's what I've been doing all this time on inappropriate conversations, or if it was specifically about that one weekend. I've said before that you know some of the things about those weekends I tend not to share. I tend to hang on to them, either because sharing about it requires a, a bit more of a face-to-face type of conversation, or because there are things about these spiritual weekends that are probably best reserved for those people who attend those events. But I'm going to make an exception. And I'm going to make an exception for a couple of reasons related specifically to inappropriate conversations topics in just this year, in 2014. In the very first episode I put out in January, I called out that in some ways in response to the reaction that I'd seen from many of my fellow Christians to the Duck Dynasty controversy, the lack of response to things that are going on today in countries like Uganda and Nigeria, not to mention Russia, the state of the legislative process in locations like Kansas and Arizona, and frankly, Texas and elsewhere, is enough to make me say that I do not want to be a part of an organization that is going to continue to engender hatred, especially not hatred in the name of Christ. And I fear, having read the Facebook posts and things on Twitter and elsewhere, from people that I've done this particular ministry with, that I can no longer be a participant. And then I'm wrestling with it, because in the most recent inappropriate conversations, looking at some of the theories from M. Scott Peck in his book, Different Drum, it occurs to me that maybe I'm making a mistake by leaving what I consider to be a stage three or stage four uh, level of spiritual development out of these small groups. What happens if I leave all of the retreats and these sort of spiritual weekends to the people who are stuck in what we might call a stage two understanding of spirituality, where everything's about black and white and good and evil, where they've got a blind faith, where everything that they do is fear-based, and the behavior of others can in some odd manner endanger their salvation, or that we're living in a nationalist system, not unlike ancient Israel, where what some people do can make God angry at our nation. It was one thing to ignore some of these false assumptions when it seemed to be a minority view. You always know when you gather 40 or 50 Christians together, there's going to be some of this in the room. But I'm not used to seeing it from clergy, and to some degree I have lately seen this from clergy, and I'm also not used to it being the prevalent voice that I'm encountering. Now, I don't want to paint everybody who've been part of these parachurch activities with me in the past as wearing the same shirt or coming to it from the same perspective. But there's two things that bother me about Christianity today. One are the outspoken voices that can only be described as hateful, and the other is the silence of everybody else. Now, I've tried to do my part to not be silent. I am outspoken enough that at times I'm quite sure that in some settings within the church, I probably have a few people who are willing to roll their eyes at me because, well, they know what I'm going to say, and they know which verses I'm going to quote, and they know what my perspective is. But it ought to be predictable. It's a Jesus perspective, and Jesus isn't as inscrutable on some of these questions of how we should treat our neighbor as we in the Christian church today seem to suggest he might be. Because we're, li- we're dealing with a group of people in Christianity that the author, M. Scott Peck, might describe as having a certain form of pseudo-docetism. Docetism was a belief that Jesus was totally human, and that in the question of 
the mixture of humanity and spirituality, he was not fully God. He was pretty much just fully human. And it's not a full inverse docetism that Peck cites in his book. It's not that Christianity today believes that Jesus is fully God and was never human. That's such an obvious heresy that nobody would really fall for it. But quoting Peck, he says, The majority of American Christians have had enough catechism and confirmation classes to know the paradoxical Christian doctrine that Jesus is both human and divine. What is meant by pseudo-docetism, however, is that they put 99.5% of their money on his divinity and 0.5% on his humanity. It is a most comfortable disproportion. It puts Jesus way up there in the clouds, seated at the right hand of the Father in all his glory, 99.5% divine, and it leaves us, way down here on earth, scratching out a very ordinary existence according to worldly rules, 99.5% human. Because the gulf is so great, American Christians are not seriously encouraged to even attempt to bridge it. When Jesus said all those things about being the way, that we were to take up our cross and follow him, and they were to be like him, and might even do greater things than he did, he couldn't possibly have been serious, could he? I mean, he was divine, and we're just human. So it is, through the large-scale ignoring of Jesus' very real humanity, that we are allowed to worship him in name without the obligation of following in his footsteps. Pseudo-docetism lets us off the hook. This is the mistake cited by Peck, and it's a mistake that I often see inside the church, including in these spiritual retreats where the leaders are truly, in every way, leaders of the church itself. I sometimes refer to this similar concept as inverse Marcionism. I'm a believer who thinks that it's important to have a favorite heresy. I don't know why that is, Perhaps it's an unusual quirk of my college studies. But to me, I find Marcion a much more interesting heresy than anyone who might come from the field of Docetism. Marcion had this notion that there were two gods. One of them, in the Old Testament, an angry, cranky, vengeful, unreliable, perhaps insane god. And the other one, Jesus Christ. Not the same, not of the same essence, not Trinitarian, but a different God altogether, one who was loving, kind, visionary, and good. And to make his point, he rejected three of the four Gospels, only embracing the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, he chopped off significant portions that might disagree with his philosophy. He rejected all the rest of the New Testament and all the Old Testament. Of course, the Old Testament had to go, except the letters of Paul. And even then, I'm not sure he was complete and accurate with those letters of Paul, because as a heretic, he'd made up his mind what he believed, and he was willing to pick and choose in the most radical way, whichever text supported his viewpoint. But I would offer up that these people who are obsessed with the judgment of God, who ignore Jesus and Paul, saying that Jesus had came to abolish the law, that you would know that it was gone when he said it was fulfilled, and he said it is accomplished on the cross, people who miss that, People who ignore the entire book of Galatians or read it as if it's applying to some completely different topic than what Paul is so clearly speaking about throughout the book. These people are in some ways inverse Marcionites. There are huge chunks of the New Testament, specifically the things Marcion enjoyed the most, the letters of Paul, for example. You know, big pieces of both the end of John's gospel and most of Matthew's gospel that they're willing to ignore completely. The rest of John's Gospel they love. Ironically, they find common ground on Luke with Marcion. But they're more interested in the Old Testament, 
Because that's where salvation can be found in all of these rules. And I just cannot do ministry with people who are closer to the heresy of inverse Marcionism or pseudo-docetism than to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So how did I get here? How can I so reverentially sing campfire songs, memories of you know standing up with a large group of men and singing Great is Thy Faithfulness loudly enough and boldly enough to rattle the windows of the convention center we were in and look back and say, well, yeah, I just can't participate in that anymore. And I'm willing, perhaps, to take the risk of leaving what I consider to be an important spiritual growth organization in the hands of people that the author Peck would say are stuck in stage two. And the author Peck would even further say, stuck in stage two and should not necessarily be ignored for that reason. But lives are at stake. When you read the news coming out of places like Russia and Nigeria, lives are at stake. It doesn't take a genius to look at what's about to happen in Uganda and figure out that lives are at stake. And when legislatures in the United States of America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, are considering legislation, even considering legislation, that would put into law the right for people to discriminate against others based on their religious beliefs. It seems to fly in the face of everything our founding fathers stood for in the formation of this so-called Christian nation. So what's the fitting end to this particular chapter in my life? How do I say farewell to it? And also provide some respect to my friends who've in the past have asked me for a bit of an inner glimpse into how all this works. Well, I think I'm going to do that precisely by looking back. And I do so with a very clean conscience. I'm not sitting here with a lot of notes. I have materials that I've taken as notes before on some of the many retreats that I've done, both inside the church, so to speak, with people who are part of active ministry within churches or behind prison walls. I'm going to do it from memory, but I am going to disclose some things that uh, some people feel like maybe I shouldn't be talking about because I don't have an obligation to worry about it one way or the other. What I'm speaking of when I talk in this case about a spiritual retreat, about gathering around the campfire, is something called a cursio. A cursio is a short course, and in this case, a short course in Christianity. A three-day event, 72 hours, from the early evening on a Thursday night to the same time period in the late afternoon, early evening on a Sunday, where the time is spent in group, getting together in small groups, and sharing with one another, hearing people you know, talk about different topics within Christianity, you know, things like discipleship and piety, grace, singing songs, um, doing skits, for want of a better word, making posters, decorating things, eating fantastic food, and, and generally just having a time of incredible fellowship. It begins by being driven to the campsite, and picked up, you know, a few days later, and leaving your cell phone and your other electronic devices behind. This is not a weekend for the laptop computer or the iPad, for any phone at all, smart or otherwise, or not for a pager, for those people who might be old school. It's literally taking away all the distractions. There's no television here, no radios. The music is performed by musicians who are part of the team, and I'll get to the team concept in just a moment. And it's focusing on simply nothing else but a deep dive. A deep dive, in this case, into Christianity. The first day of the event, 
There's a quick meal, potluck, really, usually in classic Christian fashion, and the watching of a short film and introductions. And usually the introductions is a common thing, a common thread between the weekend event and the preparation for the event. Those moments of introduction, it's often made clear that we're not going to talk about work. So it's unimportant to introduce what we do for a living. That class here doesn't matter. Social standing doesn't matter. And careers certainly don't matter. The only thing that's introduced, aside from name, uh, maybe a little bit about family, is the role that you are playing in the church or the role that you intend to play in the church. Because the one I want to describe, the cursio I want to go into a little bit, is designed to take people who are active in their church, who would like to be leaders, spiritually or otherwise, within the church, and equip them to be much more effective when sent back after this weekend into the church to be actively a part of ministry. Whether that's something that we tend to think of as being openly available to laity, like a prayer ministry or a singing ministry, part of the choir, for example, going back to be a teacher, either for young adults, and which was my case, or youth or children, or even being equipped, perhaps, in some cases, to be someone who can, as a lay speaker, deliver a message on Sunday morning, stand up and speak on behalf of the congregation, perhaps. It's that kind of an equipping ministry. But it's done so in a way that isn't what I would call tactical. It's not like the entire weekend is built on saying, oh, this guy's got a spiritual gift for singing. Let's focus in on that and make sure that he returns not just a better singer, but more confident about singing in front of other people so that he can be a leader in that aspect. No, those leadership elements come naturally from what is truly a 100% spiritual focus, perhaps spiritual and mental, because I found the week to be educational. Now, interesting to me, when I was attending one of these events, not as a member of a team, but actually as an invited guest, I didn't find it as educational as I let on. There wasn't a lot of information that was being conveyed to me that was new, but I'd never seen it presented in such a condensed form before. 15 talks over the course of three days with, again, songs and food and fellowship and discussion. It was a deep dive into Christianity. And from that perspective, I took a lot out of it because in many ways it was affirming of what I had long heard and long held to be true. So again, not introducing a new set of beliefs to me and not necessarily even challenging my existing beliefs, but in my case being fairly reinforcing. I would understand someone who had gathered around this particular metaphorical campfire, finding brand new information. I've talked many times before about the state of anti-intellectualism in the church today. There's a lot of things that a lot of very active Christians don't know about Christianity, frankly about God and the Bible, because they feel no need to understand it. And I really embraced this ministry, both as a participant at first and as a team member several times after, because I believed in the commitment of saying, if we're going to have people speaking on behalf of Christianity, it would really be helpful if they knew what they were talking about. And I went in a little bit wary. And maybe this says something about me. It's not new, in other words, that at this stage in my life, I begun to look at a gathering of Christians with a sense of subtle sense of dread. Not an overt, definite, confident sense of dread, but with a subtle sense of dread that this could be embarrassing to me, 
because I'm likely to be around a group of people who have no idea what Jesus Christ said and did, but nevertheless feel obliged to speak upon his behalf. You see it often. And the more I've been online, the more often I see it. And I went into this group meeting more than a decade ago with that same underlying sense of dread. I, I was hopeful. I was optimistic. But I was also ever so slightly watchful and wary. Now, don't be alarmed by this. This is somewhat of a natural state for me. But the nature of this event brought it out. And it was only about halfway through, on the second night, late in the night, that I became convinced that this was going to be okay. We just talked a lot about discipleship. And one of the things that I pulled from it was, where does the church really stand in the face of some of the things which are so popularly identified as Christian among the politically active types. And we were putting together a poster of some sort to speak about one of the things that, in my case, I was trying to speak about one of the social issues that bothers me most. And I proposed to the two people who were helping me out that we write a nine-panel cartoon. I may have described this cartoon in the first year of Inappropriate Conversations, but I'll do it again here because, first, I'm not 100% sure I did, and second, that's been a long time now. The cartoon was going to picture a kid, you know, elementary school age perhaps, maybe slightly older, standing up with the rest of his classmates at a time of morning school prayer. I didn't necessarily put a setting on it because, truthfully, I could have been referring to 1950s, 60s, and early 70s America, but I also could be referring to some school districts today in parts of the South. So it didn't much matter. But I had him standing up and following the call-and-response prayer led by the teacher. And that's about you know, four of the panels, was just kind of setting that stage. And then in the fifth panel, when the, the child is praying, up above in a speech bubble from on high, God answers him. And for the rest of the panels in the cartoon, it's a conversation between the kid and God. Uh, and God you know, answers him and then says, hey, why are you ignoring me? And the kid says, I can't talk to you right now, God, I'm praying. And God says, well, what do you think prayer is? You asked, you, you called upon my name and I've answered you. And the kid's like, yeah, but I'll get in trouble if I don't end the prayer when the prayer is supposed to be over. And God maybe asks, you know, don't I have some say in when the prayer is supposed to be over? Isn't this a two-way street? And the kid says, yeah, remember, God, no, I'm following the teacher, not you. It was sort of the message. I forget how exactly it went, but nine panels of that sort of conversation in which I'm kind of pointing out that at no point in what people champion on the conservative side of the political spectrum as prayer in school today looks anything like real prayer. And I use the cartoon concept to put out there the idea that real and genuine prayer could be so disruptive as to cause a student who engages in it in that prescribed morning event that so many Christians seem so enamored with that you probably get yourself sent to the principal's office. You're more likely to get disciplined than praised if you actually pray during those mo- that morning moment of silence or that communal reciting of one version or another of the Lord's Prayer. I shared that with this group. And one of the reasons I did, intentionally, was I wanted to sort of root out where we stood. Was I in a group of what I would consider to be genuine Christians? Or was I in a group of what I call politically active Christians? I caught no flack for that whatsoever. In, in fact, if I needed to get you know, a little bit of leeway, I got all the leeway I needed and more. I think over the course of the first day, they'd gotten to know me well enough to know that I was sincere and I wasn't just muckraking or looking for trouble. And here at the end of the second day, I got the validation that I probably needed to say, yes, it is okay to be genuinely Christian 
in this otherwise Christian group. That's not always true. I have shared from previous experiences, previous experiences with other branches of this same organization, that sometimes sharing what the Lord's doing in your life is not going to be welcome if what the Lord is doing in your life involves minorities of some sort. So I was right to be careful, but I was also rewarded for being careful but not too careful, for want of a better way of putting it. On the last day of that event, it plays out that you've been been getting all along some personal messages. Somebody who's part of this team has been praying for you. Some people that are from your church who know that you're going to spend the weekend have also spent the weekend praying for you. At some point during that weekend, some member of that organization or someone within all of those myriad churches has been on a prayer vigil nonstop. Toward any hour of any day, some person is by name praying for you and for your weekend. And that's a very interesting thing. But in addition to that and personal letters of encouragement, there's also what I would call real personal letters where either your spouse or people from your church or people from your family have reached out to other people and shared with them, hey, you're on this spiritual journey and would you like to send some sort of note, a card, a letter, or just a note to let them know that you're thinking about them while they're on this retreat. And usually what happens is it's a couple's thing. So one weekend the men go, the next weekend the women go. Um, The segregation actually bothered me more than anything else, truth be known. And during the men's weekend, one of the people at your church, one of the sponsors of the event, will get from your wife the names of friends and family member and key church members and people that they, your wife knows you'd like to hear from. And on the opposite, for your wife's weekend, which is almost always one or two weeks later, the husband is then tapped in to do the same thing, to reach out to her friends and family members and people inside the church to send those kinds of encouraging and validating notes to her. See, one of the things I believe in as a Christian is that whether we call them accidents, whether we call them coincidence, whether we call them mistakes, that the Lord works in mysterious ways. In my case, there was a faux pas. And instead of the couple that was sending us off on this retreat, obtaining personal information for me, a list of contacts for me, they both ended up with the list of contacts for my wife. And therefore, I didn't get any cards and letters from people that I might have put forward as people that I I wouldn't mind hearing from. I'm not certain that my wife would have had the easiest time coming up with names and addresses because it was a, a name, address, and telephone kind of thing for people in the church to reach out to these other folks because, for me, most of my closest friends don't live anywhere near here or not necessarily part of the community in which I live. It's not that I don't have friends here, but the ones who I think would mean the most to me live several states away. I might accurately say that in this current stage of my life, a lot of them live much further than just states away. But it turned out that the letters of encouragement that I ended up getting were not from people that I knew that intimately or well, but from my wife's list. And that was very interesting. Because aside from my family, it was a collection of people that I would not have expected to have sent me letters in the first place. And I think probably this couple from the church was deeply concerned that they'd somehow made a big mistake and created a distraction. But instead, I was very moved to have heard from a couple of her friends Because as you might imagine, when you meet the woman you later marry in high school, and you insinuate yourself into her life in a fairly big way, 
you're probably going to tick off some of her oldest and deepest friends. Because people that she'd been friends with all the way through school are now spending time with this new person, this stranger, and not with them. And in some ways, the letter that meant the most to me came from that particular friend, that particular friend of the family. Truly, friend of both of us, but let's be honest, the reason that she's in our life is because she's a friend of my wife. I found that to be particularly moving, because she was not a believer in any way. This is the exact person that you might have said, well, why would you send a letter to this individual asking her to pray or to send a word of encouragement at all? Because it'd be one thing if you were asking her to send a letter to my wife, but it was to me instead. It'd be another thing if she was actively you know, participating in a church environment, if she was you know, a regular worshiper, but that wasn't true either. And yet, for some reason, I found that to be incredibly moving. I'll leave my experience of that first initial retreat behind, and I feel like I need to answer a little bit of a question that I am equipped to answer. I keep talking about this concept of a team, and what do I mean by team? Isn't a church retreat, isn't a spiritual weekend of this sort, just a group of people who know each other because they've worshipped together before, showing up at a particular place at a particular time, and running through a standard playbook of events? And nothing could be further from the truth. Much like gathering around a campfire, this particular campfire was built to last, built very carefully. And as the author M. Scott Peck would suggest, it takes a period of time, more than a month, almost two months, really, in many cases, to develop the kind of community that can truly be a team capable of providing any sense of peace. Now, I'm using Peck's terminology, talking about community as a peacemaking element. But in some ways, from a Christian perspective, the idea of sharing your peace with someone else is a very real and genuinely New Testament kind of a concept. Probably even an Old Testament concept, truth be known. So what happens is, a group of people um, who've been called into volunteering, in no way do they have to participate, they've been offered the opportunity They can't become part of the team just because they insinuate their way in. They have to be called. And once called, they have to voluntarily agree. And once they voluntarily agree, the role that they're assigned in the team is not theirs for the choosing. It's given to them by the people who have been elected by the entire body months earlier to be the team leaders. Those team leaders assign various roles. Some people will be sitting at tables directly interacting with the invited guests. Some will be playing musical instruments and leading in song. Some will be manning the kitchen. That doesn't necessarily mean they're cooking the food, but they're bringing food that other people have cooked and preparing it at select times. Um, Desserts, veggie trays, chips and dips, those sort of things. But controlling how that is doled out and supplied, making sure that there's always plenty, but also making sure that it's, it's used in proper measure, that you don't end up with all dessert, for want of a better word. The, the mixture of salty and sweet and healthy and not so healthy in good measure. There are other people who are assigned to what I would call a, a leadership role. Uh, in some ways they're gophers, in some ways they're set up, but they're at all times behind the scenes, making sure that if a microphone needs to be there, it's, it's on and it works. Um, that if there's, a, if there's a table that needs to be set up, it's set up and, and arranged appropriately. And then there's two, sometimes three people who spend the entire three-day event essentially separated from the group and in constant prayer in a makeshift chapel of sorts 
that in the ones I experienced, the time that I was serving in the chapel, was basically in the basement, a basement closet of sorts, in one of the two campsite buildings, one of the two retreat centers, for want of a better word. So all these roles, and maybe more, and I'm shooting from the hip here, including a handful of clergy members as well, who also are at the tables interacting with, with people that have been invited, all of those roles are set by the leader. Now, the leader is going to give a 20, 25-minute talk at some point during the weekend. So is the assistant leader. And so are seven or eight other people who are part of the team. It could be the one time that somebody who's inside the chapel leaves the chapel because they're going to give a talk. But usually it's people who are inside the room, either these leader-type folks or people who are sitting at tables. Less often the kitchen, but sometimes the musicians will, at the appointed time, address an issue for 20, 25 minutes or so. The topic of their talk has been preset. It's in some ways the same weekend every single time, but it's not because each one of these talks, while they cover a certain set of outlined material, are filled with personal storytelling or a witness or a testimony. They bring out the personality and the experience of the individual speaker. And for that reason, you can hear the same talk three, four times a year and not feel like you're going through the paces one more time. It doesn't have the drudgery of being repetitive because each one is uniquely formed and uniquely presented. And then, of course, the clergy have talks as well. The key speeches about you know the meaning of grace and the different forms of grace, this being a Wesleyan type of a, of a cursio, well, that's important too. So, As somebody who's on a team, you come in, usually to that first group formation meeting, understanding what your role is. I've done it several times. I've been someone who was at a table and had a talk. I've been somebody who was serving in somewhat that kitchen role. That was specifically the the prison ministry. And I've been somebody who was in the chapel. So for all these occasions, either coming as a guest or serving on the team, I've had different roles. I've never given the same talk twice, let's put it that way. And each one of the experiences has been completely different. But like I mentioned when I was talking about day one of the experience of this particular form of cursio, day one of team formation is the same thing. More often than not, the leader of the group says, when we're introducing ourselves, I need to know who you are, I need to know the church that you're from, feel free to share things about your family, but nothing about work. The work that we're doing to prepare for this particular retreat, is the work of Jesus Christ. And it stops there. For all I know, I could have been working side by side and arm in arm with people who are trash collectors and CEOs. I didn't know because it didn't matter. And I usually did a very good job of honoring that and tuning out those who might not have been quite so good at not sharing too much. Now, most of the time when you'd hear sharing that would reveal details and aspects of people's work life, It was because they were from the same church and already knew all the answers about each other. But again, I tried to do a very good job of tuning it out and not letting anything from somebody's work experience creep into my knowledge about them and influence me unless it was part of their talk. Now, this process of meeting is a seven, eight, nine weekend affair if it's a weekend set of team formation events. Some meet on the same weekday for several weeks in a row. But it's several weeks in a row. Those weeks are not spent practicing what it might mean to be part of an interpersonal conversation on a table. 
they're not really spent that much doing things like deciding how this closet might be con- converted into a chapel. How would it be decorated? How would it be lit? Would there be music or not? Those activities were extracurricular. They were outside the team formation process, meaning that when I was working in the chapel, we met a few nights outside of the regular team formation to do things like trying to figure out exactly what we wanted the chapel set up to look like, and if we were going to bring music, what music should we bring, and how should we play it, and what was the dynamic inside the chapel going to be. You usually have an experienced person who understands what the role is, and Maybe another person who's been on teams before but hasn't necessarily been in that chapel role, and then another person who's totally new to it. My experience was being that other person who was totally new to it. But a lot of that tactical work happened outside. The team events were getting to know one another, um, answering questions about our own spiritual experience, praying, taking communion. At some points along the way, hearing the talks that will be presented on the weekend presented to us in practice form so that we could offer critique if critique was necessary, give those speakers an opportunity to stand in front of a large group of people and delivering their talk, and also getting a sense of the timing. Were people going to be well off or way on their time in terms of how much detail to put inside a talk that might otherwise be about a completely different topic like perseverance, for example. So in the midst of having those meetings, you get to know people. You're intentionally paired up in different ways to where each week you're spending time with a different member of the team. And then in some of the group conversations, there's an aspect of encouraging everyone to speak so that at some point during that time, every single person who's part of the team, it could be 40 or 45 people at times, has heard from every other member of the team so that a trust can develop so that you know what people are going through. And the year that I served in the chapel, not really having much clue what I was going to be doing in that role, was an interesting year in terms of what it means to learn what other people on the team are going through. Because after accepting the call to be one of the leaders for the event, and after the team formation activities began, this man's wife informed him that she wanted to separate. I didn't really know those details. Because again, much like we weren't talking about what we did for a living and where we worked, this wasn't information that he chose to bring in and have it be an influence on the team environment. But as someone who was in the chapel and serving in the chapel during some of the talk preparation time where people would come in to speak, or pray before they spoke, rather, this person spent time in the chapel on his own, really dealing with the emotional devastation of being someone in a marriage that he didn't want to dissolve, and yet seeing it dissolve around him. it was uh, My understanding was that it was a case of somebody who'd gotten married, perhaps she got married too young, and decided that it was time to look around. And what that means usually is that there was somebody else. And that makes the prospects of reconciliation incredibly difficult, especially if the I found somebody else is wrapped up in blaming the other spouse for having deprived me of the opportunity to sow any wild oats. So this was a man who I think was, in some cases, at some points in time, barely functional. And you can really understand why. Do you love Star Trek? How about a good, scary movie? Do sexy warrior princesses haunt your dreams? Then you'll love Starbase 66, the international Star Trek horror and fantasy podcast. 
Join Rick, Karen, and Kennedy each week as they discuss your favorite and not-so-favorite movies and TV shows, only on the simply syndicated 21st Century Media Network. So I'll use just this one event that I'm describing to talk about a mountaintop experience. One of the things that happens in the weekend itself is that every member of the team has the name of one of the guests, somewhat randomly drawn, and that's the person that you are being led to pray for during the weekend. So some teams, I believe, exclude the chapel from that. The notion is that those serving in the chapel should be praying for everybody. But in this particular team, no, despite being full-time duty in the chapel, praying for each speaker before they went on their speech and when they came back from their speech, praying for the event itself and all the other aspects, any moment or event that was happening along the way. In addition to that, I had a name to pray for. And somewhat ironically, while my heart was really going out to this member of the team who was dealing with a difficult marital situation, I learned from people who joined us in the chapel, other members of the church where the person whose name I had attended, that that couple was in big trouble and that they were heading towards separation and divorce themselves. And there have been questions about whether they should even participate in this retreat. There are some denominations where being on a fast track towards separation and divorce could eliminate you from participation in worship at all. You could be cast out of the church for it. Certainly not the kind of people you might consider for a spiritual retreat. But that's not the attitude of the denomination that I was attending at the time. And it certainly wasn't my attitude then or now. I just took that as an opportunity to say, hey, now instead of praying for somebody I barely know, and praying for somebody that I'm not really interacting with too much on a regular basis, because I'm only seeing this person during mealtime and during entire group events. I'm not in the conference room while the talks are being given. I'm missing most of the songs, as a matter of fact, because my role is to be separate. My role is to be in the chapel. Nevertheless, praying for him that entire time, because I was worried. To me, this is one of the big... The big frightening things, I didn't have to experience divorce in my family. My parents stayed together until my father's death parted them. And likewise, my wife's parents stayed together until her mother's death parted them. And I feel like my marriage is a very happy one. So that uncertainty, that stage two spiritual development fear, in this case, fear of the unknown, not knowing what happens in a relationship to cause it to dissolve, made it all the more frightening. So I was praying for this individual and his wife very sincerely when on the last day, if not the last talk, the next to the last talk, the leader whose wife was leaving him, it was his turn to talk. It's not like he didn't know. He knew from the second he said yes to be one of the leaders of the team that he was going to have not just a talk, but this talk near the end of the event. And he was not at all equipped. His situation and his emotional response to the situation had not gotten better since the moment in team formation when he was informed by his wife that their marriage was over. It had gotten worse. And in a moment in the chapel that I will never forget, we had been praying for him, trying to calm his nerves, seeing if he was ready. He's not the kind of person who was going to suffer from any sort of stage fright speaking to a room with you know, 40, 50 people in it. But at the same time, maybe more than that, but at the same time, he was not prepared emotionally to deliver this particular message. Well, let me tell you something that I left out that I think is very interesting. On day one of this, when the people who were participating in the event introduced themselves, it was very different than the time I was a guest. 
the time I was a guest, I was there with a cross-section of men from various ages. But almost all of them had been at their church for a long time, had been in stable relationships for a long time, and were truly, I guess, ordinary for this event. People who were already active Christians and stable home life who were looking to take the next step toward leadership. But on this particular one, the one where I was in the chapel, the one where I was part of the team, we were introduced to our guests on that Thursday night. And it was shocking to me how many of them were dealing with divorce, separation, or the aftermath of divorce. It was a fairly high number, including people who were there simply because they were now finally looking for a chance to reconnect with their children after having gone through a very rocky and difficult divorce situation. And maybe the spouse who left also left their faith and left the church and left this man behind, kind of trying to provide what spiritual leadership you could in the wake of that kind of devastating emotional trauma. And so what I did was I grabbed this man right before he went to his talk, at a moment when he was still dealing with devastation, still not emotionally prepared, not ready to speak. And I was the last one to talk to him on the way out the door. And he turned to me and he said something to the effect of not being ready, not feeling right. Essentially, I think his message to me was, if I can't do a better job as a husband holding my family together, then what in the world am I doing here? Why am I presuming to speak in front of other Christian men? What have I got to offer? I was seized by an emotion that I don't think I was prepared for myself. And I know later from looking at the other two gentlemen who were serving in the chapel with me that they'd never seen this before from me and they didn't see it coming when it happened. But I grabbed him. I turned. I stared deeply into his eyes. And I told him that there was not any possibility that any of this was an accident. There was simply no way that the tragic circumstances that had hit his life had made him ill-equipped or unacceptable as a speaker before this particular group of men on this the last day. Look at the men he was speaking to. Remember what they've shared with us on the very first day in the introduction and since. He is the absolute perfect person to stand before this group because he's walked their walk. He is walking their walk now. In some ways, if he's not equipped to speak to them, it's because he's further behind them, but they are walking the same unfortunate path. And nobody is in better shape to tell them what to expect on the first week after they've come off a spiritual mountaintop experience. No one's better equipped to explain to them the difference between that spiritual high and the lowest of lows than this speaker. I accompanied him to the conference room, and continued to pray for him in the back of the room, unobtrusively, while he gave his talk. I can't necessarily speak for how all the other talks went, but his talk was effective, sincere, emotional, and powerful. And I'm told by him, by the other men in the chapel, that that might not have happened if I'd been shy and withdrawn, if I'd been afraid to speak, if I'd acted like the new guy on his first time on a team. And the only thing I can say to that is you don't come back from an experience like that, especially happening at the very end of the event, without describing it as a mountaintop experience, without describing it in Christianese 
as taking my hands off the wheel and letting God go with me where he wanted to go. None of this, of course, saved that marriage. At the end of the day, anything that forestalled the events in the marriage of the the guest I'd been praying for, that was a short-term thing as well. Some things are meant to end. Sometimes there's not much that we can do about it. But in that particular moment, I felt like there were words that needed to be said. And much like my aggravation with Christians around the world, and Christians inside this same parachurch group today, I spoke. And it's why I'm so disappointed in those who don't. Our different drummer today is a very effective speaker. He's a pastor or an ex-pastor and an author named Max Lucado. Most of my interactions with Max Lucado come from a podcast he puts out called Daily Devotionals. It used to be called Up Words, and I've got clips from both of them to share, which I think I'll do right now, because even though I know I'm not capable of recording and delivering a one-minute long podcast on a daily basis, weekly basis, or ever, I'm awfully glad that Max Licato is. This is Max Licato. When people are refused access to Christ by those closest to Him, the result is empty, hollow religion, ugly religion. Hard to believe, yet it happens even in the church. It happens when a church spends more time discussing the style of its sanctuary than it does the needs of the hungry. It happens when a church is known more for its stance on an issue than its reliance upon God. It happens when we think Jesus has more important things to do than to be bothered by such insignificant people. Christ thought otherwise. When we lived in Miami, Florida, there was a member of our congregation who enjoyed bringing the homeless off the streets into our Sunday morning worship service. There was one lady who had a bit of difficulty seeing the homeless brought into the sanctuary and given a seat. She complained to this man that he shouldn't do this. She told him, I find these visitors that you bring to church are very strange people. His response to her was so classic that I can still remember it a quarter of a century later. His answer was, Well, they're not nearly as strange as the people you bring. Yours are invisible. Listen, God's house always has a place for God's people. And God's people are all over the world in all types of circumstances. Lucado served for two decades as the pastor, the senior minister, at Oak Hills Church in San Antonio, Texas. Oak Hills is a Church of Christ church. He also served before that as associate minister at Central Church of Christ in Miami, Florida. He referred to those older years in one of the two clips that I played. In the next episode of Walk the Earth, the one that will come out after this one, I intend to speak about Church of Christ in dealing with some questions about how do you pick a denomination if you're looking for a new place to worship and you've got a heart for social justice, I guess is how you hear people refer to it today. I would refer less to Lucado as a pastor because I've never really heard him preach. Short of these one-minute chunks, I'm unfamiliar with his church or that church experience. San Antonio is one of my favorite cities in the United States, but I've never been there on a Sunday morning to attend a worship service before. No, I know Lucado better from his books. The one book in particular that I probably like best of all of them is called It's Not About Me. 
and the book It's Not About Me is very consistent with one of my worldviews, It's Not About You. The thing about Lucado that I think is probably a, a valid criticism is that as an author, he's very simple, and his books are very simple. So you may capably cite him as somebody who's been the author of nearly 100 books, give or take. 80 million copies in print is what Wikipedia says about him. But it's a little bit easier to write that many books when you're not dealing with material in the kind of depth that perhaps Thomas Aquinas did. And yet at the same time, that simplicity is perhaps among his strengths. I don't go to Lakato for deep theological insight. I go to him for encouragement as much as anything else. And therefore, there's a couple of things I don't worry about. I don't worry about the fact that there's more surface than depth there. For me, the depth came from my Curcio experience. I don't necessarily need that every day. But the other thing is, I don't look to Lakato for any insights that are deep into politics either. I quite suspect that his political worldview would not line up cleanly with mine. I honestly don't know how close he is or how far away he may be, and I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to worry about it because my perception is that his view of the right approach to political issues could be described as shallow in a negative way, just as I've described many of his books on theology as being shallow in a positive way. When I'm looking for quick encouragement, a one-minute daily devotional podcast, for example, I get what I'm looking for from Max Lucado. And that, frankly, is enough for me. So I've scratched the surface of these mountaintop experiences, and I did so intentionally. I've only talked about one experience on a team, one experience as a guest. I haven't gone into the experience inside the prison, and I suspect that I probably won't. It's enough to say that I have gathered around the campfire before. I have sung Kumbaya and all of its equivalents. I've been warmed by a glow that didn't just come from the flames, but also came from within. And it's going to be an interesting journey for me to navigate through a decision that I believe I have made now. To say, not again. At least not with that group, and not in that particular way. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. Show notes are on the website at www.inappropriateconversations.org. Comments are enabled there. You can find Walk the Earth as a page on Facebook, along with Inappropriate Conversations. The Inappropriate Conversations one is listed as a cause. I'm active on Twitter. You'll find me there at IC underscore Greg. And you also can listen to Inappropriate Conversations on Stitcher Smart Radio. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Mastersofnone.com. Our DJ name's real. 95% of them are completely fake. There's someone named Rusty Fender, traffic person. Ew. I'm Rusty Fender giving you the traffic. I really hope that that guy gets in a bus accident. Yeah. This would be ironic death. Now your name is Bloody Fender. <laughs> and you're causing the traffic. <laughs> okay, then you got people who just steal famous names like George McFly, Jack Daniels, Maverick, and Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right, I made the last one up. I made the last one up. <laughs> it was just like an 18-year-old intern. Hi, everyone. I'm Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> what? Anything with nice. You need those, like, those short-sounding names with that one, too. Chuck Nice. Jack Nice. Benjamin Nice really doesn't work. NPR, try to get edgy by trying to get some cool radio names going on. I'm Bartholomew Nice. <laughs> Bartholomew. Nice to be here on NPR. <laughs> I will cite yeah. Wild Bill Shakespeare is an actual <laughs> radio name. That was actually a before and after puzzle on Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> masters of None. Email Masters of None at simplysyndicated.com. On Twitter, Masters of None. And on Facebook, Masters of None.